I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. Uh, I'm Alexander Rosen, the Executive Director here at the Long Now Foundation. And we are starting our 13th season of these talks. Uh, thank you all for coming for the last 13 years. Uh, and I just wanted a couple acknowledgments. Um, one of them is to you all as members. You fund a huge portion of this series, uh, and that's a not only that, but you know, general operations of the foundation, which has been a huge help all the way through the years. Um, but also Margaret and Will Hurst, who fund all the video production uh, that gets done of these and the audio, so that we can put them out. And uh, about 1.2 million views um, we got in the last year. So it's uh, while we have, you know, we've got 700 people here in the in the audience. There's another million people over the course of the year that really get to see these talks because of that, which is great. Um, and then our seminar sponsors, who um, who also fund a, a huge chunk of this. So it's a, these these venues and these events are uh, are difficult to put on, as you might imagine. Um, and our speakers all speak for uh, for free. They waive their speaking fee, which has been amazing. Um, and so they're also, in a sense, a, a sponsor of this series. So all of that put together is the reason we keep on being able to do this over the years. Okay, our speaker tonight, uh, I'm proud to say, has proved me completely wrong about something, which is I've been saying for years that the most interesting point in a society or civilization is where invention becomes innovation, sort of starts to get put to use. And I've long said there's the pre-commercial period that's really loose and uh, you're not trying to make a bottom line, you're just goofing around with the new thing, whatever it may be, and that's the most creative period. Except the kind of stuff that our speaker tonight talks about does get commercialized right away. Sometimes it's already commercialized and then it gets weird. And it turns out the equivalent of being pre-commercial is being frivolous. And that's why we love hearing from that great scholar of where good ideas come from, Stephen Johnson. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Uh, it's such a great pleasure to be here. What an incredible uh, waste of this amazing acoustic space to fill it with my voice. I, I'm so sorry to do this to you. Welcome to uh, 2017, everyone, uh, or zero 2017, as we like to call it in the Long Now Foundation. Uh, good riddance to 2016. Um, <clears throat> To, to, to get us out of the, the dread of 2016, I propose for you an evening of wonder and delight. Uh, that's my plan for tonight. Now, I was thinking about this talk the other day. I kind of planned it all out, and I realized that most of the uh, stories that I want to share with you tonight uh, take place over the last thousand years or so which I realized is kind of shamefully short-term thinking for the Long Now Foundation, and I was just embarrassed to come with such a short attention span kind of view of history. Uh, and so I thought I would set the stage tonight with, with three objects that actually belong to a much kind of deeper, older historical timescale. Um, and the first of these are these shell beads. 
uh, found in Morocco, uh, dating back more than uh, 80,000 years. Uh, they were believed to have been strung together as a form of, uh, of a necklace. And they, they're considered to be, among a few other kind of rivals, the, the oldest evidence of jewelry and ornamentation that's been crafted by human hands 80,000 years ago. Second, these bone flutes, more than 50,000 years old, uh, discovered in modern-day Slovenia, not far from the ancestral homeland of Melania Trump. Uh, <laughs> they're one of the oldest bone flutes are some of the oldest known musical technologies uh, crafted. Drums are a little bit older, but these are crafted to create a very distinct pitch. And in fact, we believe that some of these bone flutes were designed to create uh, musical intervals that modern Western ears would recognize as fifths and, and octaves as well. Those are about 50,000 years old. And then finally, a, a discovery from a little more recently from the old Babylonian site of Turka, uh, where archaeologists discovered the remnants of cloves uh, that were dated back to 1700 BC, uh, almost 4,000 years old. Now, it may not seem surprising to us that B Babylonian foodies <laughs> had a taste for spice in their meals, but consider this, until just about 250 years ago, every single clove uh, consumed anywhere on the planet originated in one of five islands a few hundred miles east of Indonesia, the, the, the Spikes Islands of Lore. So these cloves, 4,000 years ago in Turka, had somehow, in an age where modern cartography, modern compasses, modern shipbuilding had not really been invented yet, these cloves and the signal of interest in the taste of these cloves had been kind of loud enough to cause them to travel across a kind of relay network of traders to make it from these remote islands all the way to Turka. I mean, people in ancient Babylon would have had no idea of the existence of Indonesia, much less these five remote islands. And yet somehow these spices made it all the way around the world to arrive there. Beads, necklaces, flutes, spices, what do all these things have in common? <clears throat> Let's start really with a, with a kind of a negative definition here. Um, these are all things that we don't really need. They don't have a clear kind of survival function. Um, they're not directly utilitarian. Um, we don't need them to reproduce. We don't need them to keep our bodies regulated at the proper temperatures. We don't uh, need them to, to, to stay alive, but we find them interesting for some reason. We find them delightful for some reason. And that history of delight and that history of, of wonder is a very ancient part of what it means to be human. And I, in some ways, in, in thinking about this category and, and, and this part of our history, uh, I wanted to kind of do a shout out to uh, a, a long now founder, Brian Eno, who, who uh, came up with a uh, everything that I'm going to talk about tonight basically falls under this umbrella of this, this definition that, that Brian came up for art, which is art is everything that you don't have to do, that we don't have to do. Um, we have to regulate our body temperatures around 98 degrees. Um, some of us at least have to reproduce. Uh, 
to continue the species going. But there is a whole world of seemingly frivolous things that are part of our experience and that have been apparently part of the human experience for tens of thousands of years that are nonetheless uh, incredibly productive and important to our civilization. And of course, the history of that, I mean, in, in, in this work, I, I tend to talk about these things under the umbrella of a slightly different word, not, not art, but play, drawing upon uh, Heusinger's uh, notion of homo ludens, the man, the player. Um, but it basically means anything, whether it's games, whether it's fashion, whether it's music, whether it's whatever the experience is, it's something that is not directly functional, but that nonetheless kind of activates our interest and our surprise and our sense of delight in the world. Now, the, the history of these pursuits, as trivial as they might seem sometimes, um, is an interesting history in and of itself. Um, there is, there's a lot to be said about it. It involves a lot of interesting characters. But I want to make a stronger argument to you tonight. I want to make a stronger argument and, and try and convince you that, in fact, these forms of delight, these forms of play, have actually been significant drivers of change and of progress in society. If you think back to the history classes that you took when you were in high school or in college, and you kind of rolled off the list of the prime movers of history that you know, kind of your surveys were organized around. You could probably do this on you know, the fingers of two hands, right? You think about the, the quest for power, or um, various forms of tribalism, or, or nationalism, or religious beliefs, um, or the kind of long march of, of freedom, or democracy, or scientific breakthroughs that drove progress, or the kind of desire to accumulate wealth. All of these things are obviously a huge part of the history of human civilization. But I would argue that there is a, a, another form of our culture, a form of our kind of human identity that deserves a place in that pantheon, that has been driving change, that has not just been some kind of surplus that we got to enjoy once we you know, reached a certain level of economic wealth and civilization, but it's actually something that made that progress and made that civilization possible in the first place. And tonight I want to talk about kind of three major forces, globalization, innovation, and democratization, and show you how play and delight played an integral role in, in making those things possible. Now, globalization, of course, we've already seen it to some extent in the story of those spices and those cloves. The, the spice trade, starting with clove and, and nutmeg and then cinnamon and, and then pepper, this is really the very origins of a global marketplace in the first place. We have global economies originally because of spices. Now, this is something that is taught in schools, right? We hear about the spice trade. We hear about the age of exploration being partially driven by spices. And eventually, of course, spices did become somewhat functional seeming, at least, in that they were rumored to have great medicinal value um, and they became symbols of status. But it began that whole process of forming a global economy, of connecting parts of the world that would never actually physically see each other but would nonetheless share flavors and, and tastes. It began with something as trivial and frivolous as a, as a spice, as a taste of a, a clove on the tip of your tongue. And in fact, we are still living in many ways in, in the map that was first carved out or charted out by the kind of intrigue with, with spices. So the first globally integrated spice trading network was the Muslim spice trade network that formed in the kind of 800s and 900s, where you had a single integrated system that traveled from as far away as Indonesia all the way to Africa. And we still live with the after image of that 
map because the, the map today of global Islam is the map of all the places where Muslim spice traders successfully sold people these obscure spices from around the world. Everywhere where Islam tried to bring this religion to a new culture through military forces, it basically failed. But where the spice traders did their work successfully, that's where Islam resides today. In fact, there's an argument that Islam would not have become a global religion had the spice traders not brought the, the word through their networks. But there are other examples of the way that delight and play led to globalization. One of them starts in the late 1600s in London, when a group of largely kind of well-to-do women begin to be extremely interested in this new fabric that has come over from India, really two fabrics, calico and chintz. And these were fabrics that had been basically kind of technology, innovation that had been created in, the, in, in India by dyers and textile producers hundreds and hundreds of years before that. And they involved two real breakthroughs, one of which was cotton itself, which was kind of a miraculous thing. Um, you know, up until this point, people in England were wearing wool underwear all the time, which you can imagine in kind of damp, rainy on a night like tonight, uh, walking around with wool underwear was, was a little bit unpleasant. Um, but the other thing that the calico and chins brought were these beautiful dyes and, and patterns that would survive multiple washes. So not only were they particularly vibrant and, and, and glorious to look at, but they were also durable, and so you could continue to enjoy these, these colors and, and, and fabrics for, for long periods of time. And people put them on their furniture and they built drapes out of them, but then they started putting them on their bodies. And when they did this, the delight in this new experience, in this new fashion, set off a chain of, of events that transformed the world. What first started to happen is this massive trade imbalance develops with India. The East India Company begins making a vast amount of money selling, importing calico and chintz um, from India and selling it to these well-to-do women. And what almost immediately then happens is that there's a massive backlash against these women because, of course, in their fashion choices, they are devastating the traditional wool industries of northern England. And so what you might call a make England's wool industry great movement <laughs> <laughs> erupts, and these women who have developed this kind of scandalous taste for these exotic foreign fabrics and that are destroying their national economy through this interest in this exotic thing from somewhere around the world, begin to be publicly shamed and condemned, and a whole uh, series of kind of pamphlets and poems and, and plays and songs are written. I love the idea of, you know, political protest in, in poetry and, and song. I suppose that's what hip-hop is in some level. Um, but they, are, they were written about these women. They were called Calico Madams. And it was this kind of strange mix of, of nationalist economic fervor and some weird misogyny about these women who were indulging in these kind of sensual delights at the, at the cost of, uh, uh, of England's economic well-being. And for a while, Calico and chintz were outright banned. This is a recurring theme you'll see in this again and again. People kind of develop this interesting, new, uh, delightful experience, and people just try and outlaw it because it's clearly destroying everything. Um, and so for a while there, it's actually banned from, from, from England. And of course, at the same time, a separate group of people begin to look at this phenomenon, and they say, well, wait a second, hold on. Uh, what if we tried to make some of these fabrics ourselves using new technology, using new steam-powered technologies and, and machines? And that, of course, is the birth of the Industrial Revolution. 
And so the conventional way that we tell this story about industrialization is really a story about these inventors and entrepreneurs and people coming together with these big visions of how these new machines are going to change the world and they invent them. And that eventually creates a, an upper middle class that's wealthy enough to start to enjoy things like fancy fabrics and, and fashions and grand department stores of the 19th century. But that story really fundamentally has it wrong. Yes, those entrepreneurs and those inventors were part of the story, an important part of the story. But the spark that set the whole process in motion, or at least one of the very key kind of defining initial forces, the prime movers that started that whole process, was this moment of delight and wonder at a new fabric coming from somewhere across the world. That was really the, the beginning of the process, and it set the, the whole thing in motion through that initial moment of, of delight. And then you get to this you know, kind of very interesting process um, where as more and more uh, through the 1700s, fashion starts to accelerate. Uh, and what it started, talk about kind of long-term thinking, what it started at the beginning of the 1700s where the rhythms of fashion were basically the, a, a new look would arrive every decade. That was basically the pace of fashion change. And then all of a sudden this new thing starts to happen where cities around the world begin to be coordinated in this new kind of interesting clock of kind of visual looks that would be updated first once every 10 years and once every five years until by the end of the 1700s, and you could see this thing speeding up over the course of that century. Finally, it kind of settles on this pace of, you know, there's a new look, a new mode every year, and that's pretty much where it, where it ended. Uh, and, and for a long period of time, people were very scandalized by this accelerating rate of change, and they were also scandalized by the fact that for the first time, middle and upper class uh, upper middle class women were able to kind of dress and look like the uh, elites. And there was this big question about whether this was going to lead to uh, a decline in the kind of the natural order of society and that the kind of hierarchies of society would be basically unraveled because people could no longer kind of distinguish themselves um, visually between the kind of aristocracy and the, and the middle class or the upper middle class. And in fact, there may be some argument that this was in fact happening, and the, the great historian Braudel has made the argument that while fashion sometimes seems trivial, it's interesting to note that many of the cities, many of the nations where democracies and political revolutions first took place were places where fashion were particularly developed. And then in a sense, you exercise this interest as a society in new things. You have an openness to new experiences. You have a, 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 a willingness to kind of shed the look of the past which then maybe creates the, the groundwork for more serious, substantial revolutions. Certainly, it, it, it transformed the kind of semiotics of class distinction, that suddenly it was possible for kind of middle-class and upper-middle-class people to look like the elite. And then eventually you get these department stores in Paris and in other great cities in the 19th century. And one of the things that happens with the rise of the, the kind of grand magasins like uh, the Bon Marché is that this extraordinary develop, development happens where well-to-do women going into these grand department stores begin to steal. Um, they arrive in these places that have been kind of designed to be these great palaces of consumption, and they, even though they can absolutely afford uh, the goods on display there, they start stealing from these stores. It, 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 this rash of kleptomania <laughs> runs through Paris. It becomes known as the department store disease. <laughs> and it sets off, again, a really interesting kind of intellectual discussion and scientific discussion, psychological discussion about what is happening in the minds of these people. They clearly can afford the goods they're stealing. Why are they stealing it? 
And what eventually the kind of experts come around to is this idea, which is now very kind of custom in our society, which is that the built environment of the store seemed to be making people crazy. <laughs> and that it was suddenly possible to say, well, listen, this was a disorder that wasn't coming from some you know, problem that you could diagnose with phrenology or you know, some intrinsic problem with hysteria or whatever. It was something about the external world and changes in kind of technology and commercialism, whatever it was, was making people a little nuts. And we, we live in kind of the echo of that diagnosis today all the time when we debate what you know, the effect modern media is having on our brains or fake news on Facebook or whatever the conversation is. Um, that was one of the first places where we began to think about the impact of kind of new environments, whether they're real or virtual or the kind of strange simulated fantasy land, wonderland of, uh, of a shopping environment, what that was actually doing to our psyche. So all of these things come out of this initial interest in, in fashion, something that seems so trivial that ends up being so important. Now there are other examples of both globalization and innovation coming together around play. There was a, an extraordinary institution in Baghdad at the height of the Islamic Renaissance, um, about 700, 800 AD. Um, Baghdad at that point, as most of you probably know, was arguably the most advanced city in the world. It had incredible science and uh, incredible uh, uh, technological feats, uh, kind of lamps everywhere and running water and all these things that uh, certainly weren't happening in Europe at the time. And Inside of Baghdad at this point, there was an institution called, or the wonderful name called the House of Wisdom. And the House of Wisdom was, in modern terms, it was kind of a combination of a uh, translation bureau and a think tank and a kind of a maker lab. And in it, there were people kind of working on translating, keeping these translations alive of ancient Greek and, and Roman, Roman texts, which is an important part of the kind of, they were basically the lifeboat for a lot of these ideas. They kept them in circulation and, until Europe got through its dark ages. Uh, but there were also a, a number of engineers working inside uh, the House of Wisdom, coming up with all these really breathtaking uh, advances in engineering. And they published uh, a number of these works. They have great titles, um, like the Book of Ingenious Devices. <laughs> and the, there, there was a set of brothers, now known as the kind of Banu Musa, um, who published some of these books. And they're beautiful books. They, I mean, they have these kind of gorgeous illustrations. Um, and in it, there are very detailed engineering schematics that at the time are some of the most advanced engineering the, the, the world has ever seen. They have these float valves and various hydraulic systems and, and they have clocks that are more accurate than any clocks that Europe would see for another 500 years. And they're, they're all detailed uh, in, the, in these schematics with incredible precision with descriptions of how all these various different technologies work. But what's interesting is if you flip through the pages of these, uh, of these books and look at these images, what you realize is they're all toys. They're, almost none of them have any real function. They're a little kind of animated elephant clock and little automatons and little men who pop out with a little dish of soap um, and kind of peacocks with their feathers kind of flopping. Everything is, is really indistinguishable from child's play. And yet they contain within them some of the most advanced engineering that the world has ever seen. And one of their devices, which was actually almost lost to history, um, 
but was discovered in a separate manuscript about 100 years ago, which may have been their most significant man, uh, invention, was, was this device called the instrument that plays itself. <laughs> which sounds a little dirty, I realize. Uh, <laughs> And what this was, was basically it was a, back to our kind of bone flutes, it was, a, it was an automated flute player. This is a reconstruction of it that, that was done a couple years ago in, in, in Germany. Um, and it was technically really an organ. It was a kind of water-powered organ. Uh, but it could be used with an automaton to kind of create the illusion of, of playing a flute. And what made this device so radical and such an extraordinary breakthrough is that you could control the melody played by the device with this rotating cylinder with little pins in it, like the, the pins of a music box cylinder that most of us have seen. And the real breakthrough was that that cylinder was swappable. So you could take it out, code a new cylinder with new instructions for the notes you wanted to play, put it back in, and the machine would play a completely different song. And the Banamusa were very clear that this was a major breakthrough. They, they, in, in their kind of long description of the device, they spend many, you know, many, many pages describing how you make these cylinders. They actually, the language they used was they basically described them as cutting the cylinder, which is actually quite a bit like cutting a record, as we used to say back in the days of vinyl. Um, and this was an extraordinary idea. For the first time, we have a machine that, whose function is, in a sense, open-ended, where if you want the machine to do something else, you create a new code put it onto this kind of recording device and stick it in the machine, and it behaves differently based on that new code. So this is the, in, in a way, this is the birth of the, the whole idea of programmability. It becomes thinkable with this device. And the kind of the division between hardware and software, such an, an extraordinary and you know, significant divide in, in modern life, really comes into kind of focus for the first time with the instrument that plays itself. And what's even more amazing is that idea of programmability is kept aloft by music for 500 or 600 years. Music boxes start to appear in Europe where people are using these little pin cylinders to, to program both music and then increasingly these automatas that were developed. Um, there were these you know, kind of beautifully crafted machines, lifelike machines. This is Jacques de Vaucanson who designed a number of them in, in the beginning of the 18th century in, in Paris. And these were you know, little robots, um, sometimes music playing robots. He actually had an automated flute player, Vokansan did. Uh, he's most famous actually for a device some of you have seen, the, the digesting duck, um, which was, as the name suggests, an entirely automated mechanical duck that you could feed little pellets of food to. And you can see it actually goes through the, uh, <laughs> the duck's innards um, and then is excreted out uh, in some kind of digested form at the end of the process. This was the great kind of marvel of Paris uh, and the kind of salons of Paris. It was the, the defecating, digesting duck. Um, that's what the kids were into back in the day, apparently. Uh, and Vaucanson was very interested in these things. And he was, you know, spent a lot of time thinking about cylinders, thinking about pin cylinders and, and how to control the kind of uh, machinery. But at some point in this process, he starts to think, well, wait a second, what if we could use a pin cylinder not to play music and, and code music, but what if we could use it actually not, or, or to control a duck, um, but actually could use it to weave fabrics? And so he begins to sketch out this idea for a mechanical loom where the patterns in the fabric would actually be encoded in these big pin cylinders. And he builds a couple of these. Um, the problem is 
the cylinders, one, are very expensive to produce if you want to change your, your pattern. It's really difficult. And the patterns, by definition, have to be incredibly repetitive uh, because it's just a, a, an endless loop of this, this cylinder. And so the idea really never takes off, but a couple of his models stick around in museums in Paris uh, where 50 years later, um, Jacquard stumbles across Vokensen's original designs and begins to think that maybe there's a way of taking this idea of encoding instructions for a machine to make textiles, but using a different mechanism, not pin cylinders, not big metallic devices, but paper, punched paper cards. And that becomes the famous Jacquard loom, which is a, a revolution in textile production, of course, um, but it leads directly to Babbage's, Charles Babbage's analytical engine and difference engine, the first true kind of programmable computers ever really in, envisioned that were programmed in part with paper punched cards. And in fact, punch cards, many of you will remember, continued to be a part of modern computers until the 70s. I remember them from, I'm dating myself, but I remember them from my you know, third grade class when we, the, the school first got its you know, one computer. We had, I remember seeing punch cards there. And there's actually, as it turns out, a very long and rich and, and, and amazing connection between the history of computation and the history of music. And why that is is a whole interesting question. There's something about music that lends itself naturally to being encoded. Um, but just think about something like the keyboards we use with our computers. Think how dependent you are. We, they're not as you know, sexy as most of the technologies we use today, but think how important an alphanumeric keyboard, whether it's an actual traditional keyboard or or one that we, that we use on a screen, a virtual keyboard, think how important that is to the modern digital age, how much time all of us spend typing in, in one fashion or another, and how hard it would have been to program our machines to do anything had we not had keyboards. But keyboards, originally in the form of typewriters, are one of those inventions that actually arrived strangely late on the scene. And it's a little bit like the bicycle. They just seem to have been invented too late. Um, we didn't really actually have typewriters until the 1880s, but we had keyboards, musical keyboards, for 2,000 years before that. The Romans had organ keyboards. They had hit upon the idea 2,000 years before of actually using all the kind of 10 digits of your hand simultaneously, potentially, to encode or perform or, or, or share information in the form of musical notes. And musical keyboards had survived from organs to clavichords and harpsichords to piano fortes and, and pianos for all this long period of time, where it was clear that there was utility there in, in, in being able to simultaneously play music with your fingers. But for some reason, nobody took the leap to translate that over into typewriters and eventually into the keyboards of, of our computers until 1870, 1880, when people start to uh, tinker around with this idea. And in fact, the very first typewriters uh, the very first typewriter that you would recognize as a typewriter was called the musical harpsichord. And the word key in keyboard is an echo of that original musical sense of the word key. So take a step back then and think about all the ingredients that were required to invent a computer, a modern computer, a programmable computer with, with a keyboard. And the conventional way that we think about this story is that computers, particularly in the modern age, came out of big military developments. They came out of people um, trying to calculate rocket trajectories or to try and break the Enigma code or what, what you know, a whole series of things. And, and also then quickly became part of big institutions, whether government bureaucracies or, or big corporations. And that is, in fact, part of the story. That's an important part of the story. And I don't 
mean to shortchange it, but it's also essential that we remind ourselves that it also took some other crucial ingredients that played a defining role in the, in the beginnings of these ideas. It, it took automated flute players and beautiful patterns woven out of cloth and pianoforte keyboards and, and harpsichords. Those were part of the story as well. And if we only tell the story of, of that invention, that innovation of the programmable computer in terms of the military history, in terms of the big business history, we miss that crucial thread of delight, which is also part of the tale. And I'll tell you then one final set of stories about the history of delight. And, and, and it involves really shifting our understanding of what innovations are, right? We think about innovation in terms of technology and devices and so on, but I think it's just as important to remember that there's sometimes situations where just kind of redefining places and thinking about the spaces we inhabit or creating different kinds of institutions, that's a crucial kind of innovation as well that we should be celebrating along with the devices. And one of the things that we've, we've seen over the last several thousand years is the proliferation of spaces specifically designed, buildings, rooms, specifically designed for the pursuit of kind of amusement and, and, and leisure and hanging out and having a good time, non-functional spaces. And maybe some of the original ones are the kind of the first taverns and bars. Those are places where uh, people gather together um, and just to have a drink. It was not home. It was not work. It was that kind of classic kind of third place. Uh, and this is an old, old innovation, right? We've, we've had taverns and bars since before Roman times, but they have played a crucial role in the history of democracy, in the history of political revolt, in the history of new subcultures, fighting for people's freedom. Bars and taverns have played an essential role in that history. You cannot tell the story of the American Revolution without the network of taverns in the American colonies. This is the, the Green Dragon Tavern in, in Boston. Um, the taverns were the places where things like the Declaration of Independence were read aloud, where common sense was read aloud, where these new kind of seditious ideas were shared, just as in the century before coffee houses had been so crucial to new ideas and new political uh, kind of potentially sedition in Europe, particularly in London. These are crucial spaces. Now, it is entirely possible that the American Revolution would have happened had there not been any taverns. That is probably true. But what is clear is that it would have required a completely different information network and social network for the ideas uh, and the movements to develop. The tavern was an essential part of that story. And just think about the importance of taverns in things like the gay rights movement, the Black Hack Tavern in a bar in Los Angeles, the Stonewall Tavern in New York. It's, it's no accident that those were places where People gathered together for the first time. They weren't at home. They weren't at work. There was a place of kind of leisure. There were some drinks involved. And new forms of human connection and social identity could be formed. So those spaces are, are, are really crucial ones in our history. And, and they seem initially to have no real you know, immediate function, um, but they end up unlocking new forms of possibility, new forms of identity that weren't visible before they came around. And the other kind of space that came out of this history of delight that I think is really important to, to remind ourselves that it, it too is kind of a creation, is the space of nature itself. Because until the late 1700s and early 1800s, in the, in the cities and agricultural areas of, 
of places like Europe. Nature, raw nature, was strangely conceived of as a, a, a threat and actually as aesthetically kind of repulsive. <laughs> there, there was this really interesting kind of sensibility where people were just offended visually by things like mountains. <laughs> There's this, this a kind of crazy literature you read through where people were just appalled at these kind of monstrous forms uh, on the horizon. Um, so they, when they would be carried uh, you know, by coach by the Alps, they would ask to be blindfolded so that they didn't have to see these <laughs> horrible creatures looming, in the, which kind of makes sense in a sense. You've been, you know, you finally escaped from nature and you've kind of made your way into the city, and so nature is the thing that might kill you, um, and so you want to be away from it as much as possible. And so we developed this strange, almost kind of anti-biophobia, almost to, to twist Geo Wilson's biophilia. Um, but then. Slowly, thanks in part to kind of scientists, uh, particularly with mountains, there's this kind of interesting movement towards mountaineering and kind of conquering the Alps that develops in the 1700s. And then in the 1800s, romantic poetry and romantic painters begin to celebrate this kind of rugged natural look. And we begin to have a different attitude towards uh, unfiltered nature. And, and people begin to think of doing things like vacationing in the mountains suddenly becomes something that, you, that didn't sound immediately crazy. And all of these interesting little devices developed to uh, support this new interest. And one of them was called um, the, the clawed glass. And this is, this is a, a beautiful little creature. Um, it was basically a mirror. And people would take the, a clawed glass um, with them on their trip to into you know, kind of raw nature. And the mirror basically had all these little small etches on it um, so that it, it created the effect uh, of the kind of cracked look and slightly faded look of an oil painting. And so people would go to you know, visit the Alps and they would get there and they would turn around and look at the mountain <laughs> in this clawed glass device which would make it look like a, an oil painting by some great romantic artist. Um, so it was, it was an Instagram filter. Uh, <laughs> they, just, they just didn't realize it at the time. And that, that process of kind of reimagining nature as a space that we should be enjoying then leads to the idea that we might want to preserve some of these spaces. And out of that transformation in our understanding of nature and the value of nature, we get the national parks movements, Yosemite, Yellowstone, and so on. And now the world is filled with all these natural parks, um, national parks, uh, state parks, um, think about the incredible natural beauty that's preserved around this great city, uh, comes out of that shift in our understanding of nature as not being something to be feared uh, or disgusted by, but rather something to delight in and to play in. And that also creates the possibility of a new kind of wonderland, an urban wonderland of city parks. And this, too, is one of the great inventions, really, of the last several hundred years, the idea of these planned spaces inside uh, of our great cities devoted exclusively to leisure and recreation um, that belonged to everyone, um, that were true democratic institutions, that were not just the kind of exclusive parks where the elite or the aristocracy were allowed to roam, private parks, but these were parks that belonged to everyone in the middle of these crowded city centers that had been deliberately sketched out. This is Prospect Park near where I live in Brooklyn, um, the other great Olmsted Park 
in New York City. Uh, and these, these parks are really e extraordinary inventions that we should be celebrating along with the, you know, the iPhone and the internet. It's something that we now really, unfortunately, I think, take for granted in too many cases, but they're really miraculous creations. And they are celebrations of, of delight and, and play and wonder and the idea that those spaces can belong to anyone in a great teeming city. That, too, is a, is a real radical advance and one that I think we should remind ourselves of more often. If you go to a place like Prospect Park, I took this picture myself, um, on your average, say, 4th of July, this was taken in the early spring, but go there on a 4th of July and just look around at what's happening in this space. Um, it's worth reminding ourselves, particularly at this moment in time and this political moment in time, is what you will see there on that 4th of July is all of the cultures of the world gathered together in this shared space, hanging out, playing frisbee, listening to music, grilling some hot dogs, uh, walking their dog. And it is a really rare and precious kind of achievement. It's funny, when we think about kind of classic 4th of July iconography uh, in the United States, it, what always comes to mind is that kind of small town look of the, you know, the kind of small town with the white picket fence and the patriotic bunting and the, and the fire truck and the little kids out. But in a way, that experience is an old one. Human history is filled with small communities, knowable communities where everybody looks alike and, and there's a kind of shared identity and everybody knows your name. What is much rarer is the achievement that we see in public spaces like this one, where you have hundreds of different nationalities and languages sharing a space together, goofing off, um, and getting along. That is a real breakthrough. That is a real achievement. And I hope that's one of the things that we can remind ourselves in this day and age. And in a sense, it is a, it is a process, it is an experience that began with those cloves and those spices thousands of years ago, slowly weaving the world together through long periods of devastation and, and suffering. I mean, you cannot tell the story of delight and play and wonder without telling stories about the you know, slave trade and, and cotton in the United States uh, and long periods of human suffering. But the part of the result of that newly connected world, thanks to these intriguing new spices and fabrics from around the world, is, is this, a playland of people from everywhere gathered together at peace with itself and at play. Thank you very much. I'm going to go over here. Thank you. He talks so fast and so densely that none of you wrote questions. <laughs> <laughs> There are some questions. They're being so, waved at us. Write some more questions. Bring them down to Kevin. Kevin will bring them up to me, and we'll carry on. Um, one whole area in your book that there wasn't time for tonight, but now there is, yeah. is um, what you draw from games, the yeah. history of games and all of that in this regard. Well, uh, I'm glad you asked about that, because you are a character in that uh, part of the book. Um, I'm sure that wasn't why you asked. but. Uh, <laughs> So it's another side of the, um, the history of computing that's really interesting is how important, in addition to music, how important games are to the history of computing. And 
one of my favorite uh, stories in the book, actually, um, and I went back to the Computer History Museum uh, down in Menlo Park and experienced this firsthand with my son, um, is the story of the game Space War, um, which you play a role in. And Space War was this, really the first true kind of thing that we would recognize as a video game that was created uh, in 1961 by a, a bunch of, we would call them now hackers from MIT. Um, and they had this new extraordinary computer that had a monitor. This was the big breakthrough. And so they were trying to figure, they could show, you know, show graphics, and it was the PDP-1. And they, they were trying to figure out what, we've got this monitor, like what, what are we gonna do with it? And they were like, well, what if we created a game, a kind of a space-themed game? And so they create this game, which is really the antecedent of asteroids, if some of you remember asteroids. Um, and this thing kind of takes off, and it, you could make the argument it's one of the most important pieces of software written in the 60s because uh, it kind of develops open source style through, through the 60s, and this code is passed around, and all these innovations start to happen. It's one of the first examples where you see an avatar representing yourself on the screen that you can control. Um, so it's a predecessor in a way of a kind of a, a mouse icon or so on or a pointer. Well, it's also one of the early pushers of time sharing. Right. Because they were trying to make these big, basically mainframe and then so-called mini computers act like a personal computer. And people would add all these <laughs> features to it. Like one guy created this program called Expensive Planetarium, which recreated the night sky accurately. Um, it's one of the first times in a kind of non-military application you had actual realistic renderings of reality on a, on a computer screen. Again, for no purpose. It actually added nothing to the game whatsoever. It was just stars kind of in the background. And... What it then eventually, it, it kind of, you know, it's one of the first, in a sense, open source uh, software projects as well. So all these ideas that become crucial to computing develop out of it. But then one of the things that happens is um, this kid, Stuart Brand, goes and, and organizes a, a Space War Olympics at Stanford and writes about it for Rolling Stone. And through watching these people with this, you know, rapturous relationship to this, this game on the screen, he begins to think, you know, compute, as he writes, Computers are coming to the people. Mm -hmm. um, and then the next line of that article is, um, that's the best news since psychedelics, because it was 1972, <laughs> whatever. It turned uh, out to be way better news <laughs> than psychedelics. <laughs> so here you have this game, and yet it, it ended up playing a really kind of defining role in, in, in the history of computers in that period. How about chess? Things like that go back a ways. There, I mean, there's so many kind of stories off of chess. There is this... Uh, um, chess is an interesting thing because it, it, it turns out to be this incredibly powerful metaphor, right? It just is used in so many different forms. Obviously, it's an, a, a crucial kind of metaphor for thinking about um, how the mind works, how intelligence works. It's crucial for Turing. Um, but the history of chess as a metaphor is much uh, older than that. There was, there was a book published um, by a guy named Cecilus. He had a, kind of, a number of different translations of his name, but he published this book uh, it was one, actually one of the first books ever printed. It was based on a series of sermons that he had done uh, in the years before Gutenberg when it was published. Um, I believe it was the second book published in English um, after the Bible. And it was a very weird uh, book in the sense that it doesn't quite have an analogy today. It was kind of a game guide to chess. It was like how to get better at chess. And so you could learn the rules of chess and, and learn strategies. But it was also a kind of sociological treatise. And so people in, in this book, Cecilus would say, well, the queen should behave this way and the knight should behave this way. And also that is how they should behave in life. And he, and he created this whole 
elaborate system of describing the proper roles for people, but it was, it was actually a really interesting shift because he was basically making an argument for a vision of society where individual people or individual kind of vocations had their own kind of autonomy. It wasn't the metaphor of like the king's body where it's, the state is this unified thing, all part of the king, top down. It was a vision of a new kind of society organized by kind of contractual relationships between people um, and institutions where there was a king and there was a queen, but there was also this kind of semi-autonomy of all these different players. And society would work if you followed these rules and kind of lived your own life within the kind of limits of the, of the rule set of chess and, and of life. And so uh, it, it, it was popular, we think, not just because it was a good guide for playing chess, but because it, the idea itself resonated culturally at that moment in time. Well, this raises a question Philip raises. How does sport fit in as a realm of delight driving civilization? So, you know, metaphors that people use. Uh, businesses for a long time were kind of using football metaphors to uh, talk about, you know, how they should compete, things like that. But what the hell is sport? And how far back does it go? And Olympics and all of that. Yeah, it's very old. Um, the, the, there's, there's a really interesting book, actually, I was just emailing with this guy today, by a guy named John Fox, um, called The Ball. That's just all about the history of the ball oh, as a technology. <laughs> Balls are very old. Um, there, there, there are, that's my, that's the takeaway of tonight. Uh, uh, there, weirdly, there are a number of societies where they developed balls but did not develop wheels, which is a kind of an interesting thing. We're like, this is really fun, but yeah, yeah. So, but actually, there's a, one of my favorite stories. There's also kind of there's the metaphor of sport, which I think is is part of the story. Um, but there's also an interesting history of material science with sports. So, on, on Columbus's uh, second voyage. Uh, uh, to the New World, uh, they're hanging out, uh, I think it's off of mo modern-day Haiti, I believe it is, um, and there are these indigenous people um, there on, kind of near the beach, and Columbus's men are hanging out, and they're watching them play this ball game, and they're like, what is the deal with that ball? It is so bouncy. Like, we can't figure out what is going on. It just seems to be defying gravity. Like, I don't understand that. And what they're seeing for the first time is rubber. Um, and so all throughout, I mean, this is a, cause it was a big ancient kind of innovation of Mesoamerican society, but they, they basically had figured out a kind of a low-tech way to vulcanize rubber, you know, many hundreds of years before Goodyear. And they, they had done... Uh, some functional things with it, but the big thing is they developed this ball game, which is a kind of legendary ball game that, that all those civilizations played, and that was apparently an important part of kind of religious rites. Um, so there was a direct connection between people who were kind of so religiously into their football teams um, <laughs> that they, they you know, can worship at the church of whatever. Uh, I know so little about football now that I can't even make a joke that has any specifics to it. I'm sorry, but... Um, what, what sport do you follow then? I really, I've kind of lost interest in sports. But so rubber... Um, <laughs> rubber... They bring back these balls to Europe, and rubber as a material, again, it's a little bit like the idea of programmability in, in music boxes. It, it circulates through Europe for a couple hundred years purely in the form of balls before people are finally like, wait, I can make a tire out of that. That's pretty good. Uh, and it's just, there are all these amazing descriptions. People are like, I can't believe it. You throw it down, and it just seems to pop right up. It's so crazy. <laughs>
something you've left out of, of your books, going all the way back to everything bad is good for you and where good ideas come from and now the, the role of play in making the modern world. One of the great areas of frivolity is um, pornography and prostitution. Yeah. There's only one prostitute in the current book that I know. She was in a tavern. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's true. You're um, the only person who read the whole book counting the prostitutes. That <laughs> 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 I know. Maybe other people are doing that, but I, I like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I can see some problems with the subject, but surely there's a huge domain of, of frivolity and non-necessary things leading to all sorts of creativity. Yeah, you know, I, I that, uh, that is a really good observation. Um, and I may correct that someday when my children are a little older and I'll write that book. Um, it's already bad enough that I wrote this book defending video games. I'm already getting so much heat for that from them. Um, but, you know, I thought about it a lot with this book um, and did a lot of very intensive research. No, I did not. I'm sorry. <laughs> Months. Uh, no, I, I, uh, I ultimately decided not to do it, not to include a chapter because it was too tied to the, the biological urge, to the, the kind of the, the grounding of the Not reproductive urge. Enough in this you know? And so, so there, there, there was a line that I had at some point in the draft, which was basically like that, that, um, that pornography um, you know, may be a kind of uh, frill or something like that, but, but sex is still a staple on some level. Um, and it's close enough tied to sex that it didn't make the kind of stronger argument that the book is trying to make. Like, here are things that really have no connection to basic drives, and yet, nonetheless, they um, were so important. So that, that was one of the two. So reasons. there's a great book yet to be written and researched, not by Stephen Johnson, on the, the subject. Yes? We're passing this on. Uh, Michael M. asks, are there different flavors of play? Constructive, destructive, collaborative? Is there a taxonomy of play? Does, you know, Heisinger and Homo Ludens go into any of that? Uh, yeah. Did you try to, to sort of uh, do a taxonomy of play? Actually, kind of the opposite in this book because, um, and, and I think it's, it's actually been, you know, one of the criticisms of it in a way. There was, there was a piece that Stephen Poole wrote um, in the, in the journal that was kind of a mixed r review of the book, but his biggest criticism was that I was grouping together these things that kind of didn't belong necessarily together. Stuff and that didn't fit in the previous book. <laughs> yeah, I just like <laughs> gathered all this stuff together and threw it out of this umbrella. And, and my argument for that is that when we think about that question that I began with, right, like what are the prime drivers of historical change, right? Um, and our answer is that. So if, if you take any of those, if you think like in you know, the quest for, or, or the, seeking freedom of, of some kind, right? That's a big driver of the long arc of history, expanding personal freedoms, right? That is made up of things that are very different from each other, right? The, the, the creation of democratic systems of governance where you choose your leaders and are free to do that and you're free to kind of vote them out, that is part of it. And then the freedom to have sex with someone of your own choosing, of the gender of your own choosing, that's another kind of freedom, very different acts. But we understand that the idea of the kind of advance of freedom is a big enough concept that we want to put all those things under that umbrella. And the problem with play is that we end up kind of balkanizing it a lot when we just say, well, okay, this is, this is gameplay over here, this is fashion over here, um, this is music over here. And when we do that, uh, we, we, we miss the, the significance of the, the whole kind of landmass. Um, 
And so I wanted to put them all together under this kind of broad category. I spent a lot of trying to figure out what the word should be, and it's, you know, there, it really is kind of multiple words. Um, but I think there is a, there is a big difference. Um, uh, I, I feel like gameplay is a really distinct thing, and I'm very interested in this. I just, I just wrote a piece the other day that's up on, on Medium um, about this, kind of inspired by the book, but uh, about this experience that I had designing a, a board game with my nine-year-old son, oh, Dean, who, who you've met, which was, uh, he was nine at the time, this is a year and a half ago, and going through the process of sitting there and kind of dreaming up what the game should be and what the rules should be, and uh, it's an incredibly rich intellectual experience, and it's a great parenting experience because you're kind of on the same level, right? The ki your kid knows a lot about games and is very good at figuring out games, and, uh, and so you're both kind of experts or amateurs uh, on the same level, and you're forced to do all these things, right? You, you, you dream up the game, you have to think about probability, you have to think about statistics, you have to think about randomness, um, you have to think about what the rules should be, what the theme should be, and you build this hypothesis in your head about how this game is gonna work, and then you test it. You finally start to play, and it turns out the game is terrible. You know, like, you, it's so boring. Or you, you, one player will always win after three turns because it's something you didn't see. And so what, what you have to start to think about is kind of basically emergent behavior with all these rules, all these interacting parts. What will be the property of the game? Will it be fun? Will it not be fun? Will it be challenging? Will it be strategy? And so on. And once you've tested it, then you revise it and build a new hypothesis and test it again. And so what you're learning is the scientific method. You know, you're building a hypothesis about something, testing and revising that hypothesis based on the feedback from the system and rinse, repeat. And that is a really rich form of thinking um, and learning. And the beautiful thing about it is your nine-year-old has no idea that they're learning, right? That's the power of it. They're just having fun with dad. Um, so it's a really good thing. I mean, I'm not a big like parent advice person, but if you haven't designed a board game with your kid, I would advise you to do well, it. Well, this is, this is sort of the observation that led to the thing I did in the early 70s called the New Games yeah. Tournament, which is that grown-ups pretty much play games according to the rules, including war and various other things. And kids basically make up rules all the time. They get, they're easily bored, they screw around. Uh, you haven't got the number of people you're supposed to have for baseball, so you figure out a game of baseball that has just two baseballs two bases, or you, know, you use a stick instead of a bat, or whatever the hell it may be, or you know, you're just goofing away with a jump rope and you figure out some crazy new things you can do with it. And kids just do that automatically. And it's something that we um, educate out of them, out right. of ourselves. And part of the, I think, surrender to frivolity and innovation is to readopt that sort of kid approach and make up new rules. I, I had this, the other thing I kind of started this piece I was mentioning, um, when I was a kid, I went through this phase where I designed all these dice baseball games for like two years. I started playing, for those of you who are old enough to remember this, before we had video games. How old I was like uh, in fourth grade and fifth grade. And we used to have, before we had Madden and PS4 and things like that, we, we, had, we, we would play these games where you had little cards representing each of the players and you'd make your lineup and then you would kind of roll the dice based on the results and they figured out the probability of this batter hitting a triple and this batter striking out versus this pitcher. And I played these games and then I got, they weren't statistically accurate enough for me. So I started designing my own games, making them more accurate. And I spent like two years doing this alone in my room. No one would ever come over to play at my house because they were really, they were, it was totally insane. It was just me and like yellow legal pads with numbers on them. Um, 
But, uh, but I learned, again, I mean, it's what I was trying to do with my son is like I learned a tremendous amount about building a model in my head and trying to, and, and just doing math in my head, doing probability in my head. It was really, it was an incredible experience. Very nerdy, but, but incredible. Ryan Phelan asks, is the history of pet ownership some version of uh, play? Yeah, that's a great question, right? It's kind of like uh, sports where you put all this passion into a thing which isn't a human. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it in that way, but but it's right. It is a very interesting thing, and, and uh, there are two two things about it that that come to mind. First is um, there's a riff in, in Wonderland in the book about uh, about zoos, right? The introduction of public zoos, right? right. And and uh, as part of the kind of parks and and, and uh, a new kind of sense of nature. And one of the when the London Zoo is formed in the kind of late. Was that 1830s. The first one? It was one of the first public mm -hmm. zoos ever, and if not the first, um, I'm sure it says one of those things in the book. I can't remember. There's so many things in the book, uh, but uh, they did this terrible thing where they had an orangutan, I think it is, um, that they would dress up in in human clothes um, and and taught the orangutan to serve tea and things like this, um, which is you know we now look at it and we're like, oh my god, that's just awful. Um, but Darwin visited the zoo in 1838. And, you know, Darwin's kind of famous for coming up with the theory of natural selection, reading Malthus in, you know, his, his study one night in 1838. But if you go back at his diaries, there, there is all this really interesting, powerful stuff that he writes about the, the clear connection between this great ape and human beings from going and visiting the zoo. And so the introduction of that zoo is actually a, a big part of the kind of the breakthrough of, of natural selection, even though, unfortunately, it involves this kind of ridiculous scene of a orangutan having tea. Um, okay, contemporary Oh, stuff. can I just say one more thing to, to Ryan's yes. question? Sorry. Um, I, I, you know, the question is, the kind of deeper question of like why we find delight in things, why we have this appetite for delight. And I was just, I was down in Santa Barbara on book tour and I had this conversation with um, John Tooby, the evolutionary psychologist, and, and I was asking him about this, I was like, what other species show this kind of sensibility and this interest in kind of playful behavior? And, and there seems to be a very clear, uh, interesting correlation between overall kind of flexible intelligence and playtime, particularly in, in development. Um, and, uh, but one of the things he, he was saying is that um, there, there are many cases where people have observed um, chimpanzees in nature going clearly on a distinct walk where they've gone out of their way, they've left behind whatever they're doing, and they follow a very clear path through the woods um, and to arrive at a waterfall where they then will sit at the waterfall and just look at the waterfall for 30 minutes, and then they go back. And so they've clearly been like, oh, you know what? I gotta check out and go look at that waterfall <laughs> for a half hour. I need a little mindful time by the waterfall, you know? Uh, and, and I thought, you know, it's funny because we had in Prospect Park, there was a, just an embarrassing little waterfall that they made um, with like sewage runoff or something like that. But they made in the, in the old growth forest that's in the middle that, that is otherwise wonderful in Prospect Park. And when our kids were little, we would take them, we'd make this pilgrimage to the waterfall like that chimpanzee, and, which they basically were a couple of little chimpanzees. <laughs> and we would go and look at the waterfall and there was no, it wasn't clear like why, but it was just something, they lived in a world where waterfalls were scarce. And so seeing them was somehow interesting and delightful as sad as this little waterfall was. Michael McClure, the beat poet, tells the story of one time he was, you know, out and taking one of these hikes, admiring things, and he came across a rabbit, 
It was sunset, and the rabbit just sat and watched the sun set. <laughs> and clearly delighted the rabbit, and it really delighted Michael. So, you know. <laughs> Peter Schwartz asks, and this is sort of building on your, uh, if you want to see the future go where people are having a good time. And so Peter asks, where is the frontier of wonder and play today, and what does that tell us about the future? Well, yeah, that, I, I didn't even kind of talk about that so much in, in, in the talk. There's a kind of predictive component to, to play that's pretty interesting. You know, if you were trying to figure out the big changes that were coming to society, if you were sitting there in 1750, trying to figure out what was coming next, um, watching those automated machines in the Parisian salons uh, would have been as good a prediction uh, uh, as any, anything happening in parliament or in a battlefield or something like that. I mean, there was so much of the future of automation and technology and artificial intelligence and computation all was kind of in its embryonic form there. And so part of the idea is when you, looking at what people are doing for fun is a way of kind of envisioning the future. And I think, you know, I, I, the clearest case of this, um, and it's almost an obvious one, was this summer with Pokemon Go, right? I mean, you know, here you have, if, if, if we believe, as many of us probably do, that there's some kind of augmented reality that is gonna become part of our kind of day-to-day -day lives and we're gonna walk around looking through some kind of screen at the real world with metadata attached to it, that we had this global phenomenon where all these people, my kids, you know, as much as anybody, who were begging to go out for a long walk for the first time <laughs> in their entire lives, <laughs> All those years we said dragging them to the waterfall, suddenly they were like, if they just had Pokemon Go, they would have been like, we got to go to the waterfall, like there's Pikachu there or whatever. Um, and so, so we could see this, this kind of glimpse of this future in the form, of, instead of, you know, kind of serious augmented reality, it was imaginary monsters that people were capturing, but it was, it was the beginning of that. Mike Austin asks, then, in this context, do you love or dislike gamification and why? Yeah. It's a good question. Um, I think that the, the problem with, uh, and, and I wrote about this a little bit in Everything Bad is Good for You too when I was writing about games. Um, the, thing, the thing about games is that they are, and, and this is why designing a board game with your kid is so great, they are just incredibly addictive forces. Um, and so you can get people to do, when in terms of designing a board game, for instance, you can get people to do very, you can get them to think in very rigorous ways, in a, in a strange sense, while they're doing something for fun, because the game pulls them in, and they're having, you know, I was solving all these stupid math problems, designing baseball games, because there was something so, you know, addictive about making a great game. Um, and so you can, in a sense, use those forces for good, and you can use those forces for evil. And so when you, when you are, you know, if you are using gamification techniques where you're pulling people in and there's some kind of leaderboard, um, oh. that can be a, a, a powerful thing, but it's so easy to abuse it. Um, and I haven't, I, honestly, I'm not an expert in how it has been a, a applied, and so I don't, I wouldn't want to say whether I feel on the whole if I'm, you know, kind of a friend or a foe to it. Um, but the capacity for abuse is, um, is certainly there. So maybe a follow-on question from Kevin Kelly is, is there a contradiction or a danger in the corporate desire to use play in order to be useful and to generate yeah. profits? Is purposeful yeah. play a contradiction on some level? Yeah, I mean, I, I, 
it's interesting. Like there, I felt that tension a lot when I was writing the book because. What came up that had that? Well, in the sense that um, it was in the section with the prostitutes, I think. Um, <laughs> no, it was. It was. It, it was. Uh, you paid more attention than I thought. <laughs> there, there's an argument for. Like half of the half of the book and half of kind of what I was talking about tonight is in a sense the the kind of the functional version of play. Like play does these things, um, and it enables us to come up with new ideas. It enables us to push the, kind of the range of possibilities that are available to us as society or challenge our status uh, hierarchies or whatever it is. Um, and I think that's true. I think that's part of it, and it's, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book and why I'm here talking about it. But part of me also wants to just celebrate that part of what it is to be human, that, that capacity, that, that desire to go and sit and look at the waterfall, mm -hmm. um, uh, that desire to sit there and play a game and, and have no other kind of function other than this is fun and I'm in this great moment of kind of delight with my friend here or my kid or whatever it is, and, and not make some kind of elaborate argument for why it's purposeful um, and to hold that as kind of sacred a little bit. Um, how about kind of purposeful placing? So you go to certain companies and there's, you know, foosball yeah. right there. And is this like the zoo or the park in the middle of the city and it's a little place to go recreate instead of create or what? I'm just thinking now, I've been to a lot of those companies. I don't think I've ever actually seen anyone playing foosball. <laughs> Do people are there, are there, is there even a ball in those games? I mean, I wonder. You know, okay, has anybody here played foosball in a company? Okay, all right, all right. So that's good. Glad to see that they're being used. So, so I was just at Etsy in in Brooklyn. We did. We have a little podcast, by the way, one, the Wonderland podcast, which Stuart has been on. It's, it's fun. Um, and we've we've kind of dove dove into some of these issues in the present tense. The book is quite historical. Um, and one of the recent episodes we did was on kind of play at work precisely this question. We went to Etsy in Brooklyn and their new headquarters, which are, which are lovely. And one of the things that's great, they may have a foosball table, they may have a ping pong table, but what they really have everywhere is, uh, are musical instruments. And I guess they have a lot of like, you know, indie musicians who also, you know, their day job is working at Etsy, as you might expect in Brooklyn, that's the way it is. You kind of have to have an indie band uh, to live there. And, so there's actually a record, little recording studio and, and there's like a piano here and there's like an acoustic guitar here and people are just kind of picking them up and playing and having, and that I thought was really kind of lovely and particularly as someone who, play, I play music purely a, as an amateur in my own little like kind of studio and it's one of these great, it's one of the great joys of my life as, and it's a, kind of a magical space in your life where you have a great deal of interest and passion with zero ambition. You know, you just love to do it, and you don't care if no one ever hears, um, uh, if your song has, you know, never finds an audience because you're, you're kind of doing it for yourself. And I think that that's the side of play that I think work environments can be, it, it can actually make the work environment both more productive and just a better, kind of more humane place to be, which is bringing in people's hobbies. You know, it's not about the, unless you are, unless your hobby is playing foosball, which is kind of a weird hobby to have, I guess. Um, I'm sorry to those of you who are foosball <laughs> hobbyists. Um, but thinking about, you know, in, encouraging people to, ha one, have a bunch of different hobbies. All the people that I've written about over the years, um, 
you know, one of their defining characteristics is that they have a lot of hobbies. They just, I'm thinking about Darwin and all of Darwin's hobbies are Ben Franklin and all these people. Um, and so th there's a lot of reason to suspect that people who have a lot of hobbies are more creative people, they're more interested, they have a lot of different, they have a little kind of diverse mix of influences and metaphors and tools kind of floating around in their own mind and their own interests. And they spend a lot of time focused on their big project, but then they go off and they work on the side project and something in that side project escaping from the main project frees them up to have a new idea that then ends up changing. So I think that letting people kind of bring their hobbies in to kind of share their hobbies or have a space for them at, at work, I mean, I suppose, 20% time, innovation time off at, at 3M and Google and things like that is in a sense a kind of hobby on the job. But even if your hobby is making, you know, paper airplanes or whatever it is, to like bring that in and share it and have it be part of your life at work, I think that's kind of a nice idea. I think you've got a whole book on hobbies here we go. somewhere. Okay, that and the sex book. Uh, <laughs> question from... It can be combined. <laughs> Charles, the big kid, asks, if childhood is a modern invention, does that mean play was once something different before childhood was invented? Yeah, that's a really, that's a really um, profound question. I, actually, I'd thought about, um, it, it's interesting, this, this book w was originally and may still be a kind of the basis for season two of the show we did, um, How We Got to Now, uh, the last book I did. Um, and it has a similar structure to how we got to now. It's kind of six things that changed the world. And, um, and we're, we're still hoping to, to make it. And one of the initial ideas I had was that there would be a long opening chapter kind of on the invention of childhood itself or the kind of demarcating wow. of this kind of period. And then, what and have then, you got on that? What, I, didn't, I didn't get far enough to have anything useful to say, so I'm just going to make up some stuff now. Um, <laughs> but what, what to, to, there, there, Two things that we should be kind of clear about, and then I, I won't say much more beyond this because I really didn't do a lot of research on this, but um, we, we did carve out culturally this long period uh, 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 of childhood, of development, of being in school. All the, we invented a bunch of institutions that clearly did not exist um, 10,000 years ago or something like that, um, if not 300 years ago. Um, and so that feeling of like your period of development and experimenting and playing has gotten kind of longer and there's a whole set of institutions to kind of support that, although some of those educational institutions aren't so friendly to play, as you, you mentioned already. Um, but human beings in general have a very long period of, uh, of kind of playfulness um, where, where they just, just developmentally are really interested in play, whether the institutions are there to support them or not. This is just a part of who we are kind of as a species. And I had a great chat, actually this is also on the podcast, with um, uh, Alison Gopnik um, from Berkeley, uh, who, who did, was talking about this extraordinary thing, the, the classic you know, fox versus the hedgehog, um, Isaiah Berlin thing that Philip Tetlock has talked about. Um, and the kind of creative intelligence and problem solving of the fox versus the single-minded kind of hedgehog. It turns out when you actually study actual foxes and hedgehogs, not mm -hmm. the metaphors, right, right. Um, one of the big differences is that developmentally, foxes have much longer periods of play. Um, and so their, uh, you know, their kind of parents will, will bring kind of dead mice back to them and kind of toss them in and the little baby foxes will like play with the dead mice like a ball, basically they're trying to invent a ball. Um, and they'll have this kind of long period where they're playing. And the idea is that basically if you're trying to teach uh, 
open-ended problem solving where you know you don't necessarily know what you're going to confront. Um, you got to think up something on the spot rather than one solution, which is to curl yourself up in a ball like a hedgehog does and just hope nobody bothers you. Uh, <laughs> the, the play is a great way to rehearse for that. It's, it's about unpredictability. It's about surprise. Um, and so creatures that need that kind of open-ended thinking have long developmental periods where play is part of their life, and humans just have the longest of all of them. Foxes are predators and hedgehogs are prey. By yeah. and large. Yeah. So if you're prey, it's how do I curl up? Right. If you're predator, it's what else can I eat? <laughs> <laughs> um, a little unprocessed. So you did this television series. It's horrendously hard to do. I thought you were going to say it was series. horrendous. No, no, that's, no, no, no. I was like, wow. Well, okay. <laughs> but it is hard. Yeah, yeah. We, we bonded over and, that. And many people who have done it never do it again. So you got something out of it. What did you get? I did. I did. Well, um, it is funny. I mean, you do all these things where you just you realize there are all these conventions of a television documentary where the presenter is just shown walking around and walking yes, up right. and walking up the steps to the office where he's going to do the interview, and you're like, surely they can figure out that I walked to this office, and then we don't need to show me actually doing this. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but, but, you know, a lot of my work over the years has been... Um, about the power of collaboration and about kind of collaborative creative networks and multidisciplinary thinking and all, all these things is the theme of a lot of my books, getting outside of the kind of individual, you know, inventor and seeing kind of innovation as something that happens in networks. It's in, you know, in most of the books, really. And yet, what, most of my life, I've done a couple of little startups, but most of my life as a writer, um, it's been very solitary, you know? It's a really solitary job. You, you know how that is. You spend, a, I mean, I don't use a research assistant anymore because the internet is so, Ubiquitous. Huh. That's and, interesting. And this so, is, you know, replacing jobs. It's I know, no, it really, it did. It absolutely did. I mean, I only had one <laughs> before, but um, the, uh, so I spend an immense amount of time just with me in my own space, kind of, and sometimes I'll interview people, but mostly it's just me reading and thinking and writing, and, and, you know, it widens. The great thing about writing books is that once they start to get out into the world, the network of people you're working with gets bigger, and then it gets really big, and then it contracts again, which is nice, but there's a lot of solo time, whereas a show is just, it, to a fault, a very collective enterprise, and, you know, we had multiple directors, we were collaborating on the scripts, um, we were, you know, we, were, we had research, a bunch of researchers who were helping us find things, we had cinematographers who, and they had all these different fields of expertise that I knew nothing about, which I nonetheless had lots of opinions about, and, uh, and it was, it, that part of it was really great, it was nice to kind of then go back to a book, um, and it was nice to write this one. How we got to now, we kind of developed as a book and a show at the same time, which, which I think made for a really nice show, and I, I think there, it, it hurt the book a little bit, in my mind, um, whereas I think this, because I wrote it entirely kind of uh, on its own as a book, start to finish, I think it's a little bit of a, a better book. Um, but it was enough, it was definitely a feeling of, I, don't, I would never want to do television full-time, mm -hmm. Um, but it was yeah. enough that I would like to do it again. Wow, that's impressive. Well, yeah. I look forward to it. So um, those who follow you on Twitter are aware that you are in California by yourself now. Uh, <laughs> Just getting, a couple more days. Getting <laughs> going on... <laughs> it sounds very sad. Like right, that. Oh, you poor My thing. family left me and but, yeah. like Brooklyn. <laughs> no, you're being the solitary writer and yeah. being a writer and writing a book. Uh, you want to say anything about the book in progress? Yeah, I'm working on a new book, a very long now book, um, 
Uh, inspired by us, right? No. Uh, no, deeply inspired by, like many things that I've written, um, by, uh, by you personally and by a bunch of people here and by this foundation. Um, it's a book about, uh, that I don't think I have actually talked about in public at all. Um, it's about, a book about long-term decision-making. Um, and what does that mean? It, well, it's basically decisions that are, uh, instead of kind of blink decisions, gut decisions, system one decisions, um, decisions that require deliberative system thought. One system one, system two, Dan Kahneman, um, thinking fast and slow. System one are your kind of intuitive flash decisions that you have a lot of kind of internal algorithms and run in your head that are biased in various different ways, very helpful. Yeah, blank, I mean, a lot of Blink, uh, the Gladwell book was about these things. Um, and system two is the slower, more kind of contemplative decision-making process or doing your goddamn homework. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. doing, and so this is really about <laughs> system two thinking, and it's trying to, it's trying to look at both group decision-making, so collective decisions mm -hmm. like... Um, it starts with this story about Collect Pond in New York, which was the, the source of kind of fresh drinking water in New York, uh, in Manhattan, um, for centuries, and for a couple of centuries while the Dutch were living there. And then, because it was downtown Manhattan, it became a cesspool, basically. And there was this, uh, people would discard bodies there, and uh, there was a, there were tanneries that were set up, they were kind of leaching all the stuff into the water, it was just terrible. And so basically around 1800, they were like, what should we do? They had this kind of decision process, which really wasn't a decision at all, uh, about what, and they briefly hired L'Enfant to design, before he designed Washington, to design a park for this space, in like actually 1790 or something like that. And it ended up getting kind of rejected, and so they just filled it. Um, and they built some houses on it, but they did the landfill improperly, and so the biomass began to degrade and stink, and the houses started to sink down, and so everybody left. And because of that, that neighborhood became Five Points. That is the origin of kind of the first American slum, basically, was there. And if you think about what that park would be like, it's likely if they'd built the park, it, it's probable. I mean, this is a very, um, this is like your, your point from How Buildings Learn about the grid never changing. Um, that park might have lasted for 500 years, right? I mean, it's probably Prospect Park and Central Park will, you know, it's entirely likely they might last for, for that long. Um, so you can think of it as kind of like a 500-year mistake. They just kind of filled this in and created this thing. So we actually are much better at making decisions like that now. We have a lot of techniques for kind of looking at all the variables that go into should we build a park here or should we do this kind of long-term thing. Um, we've gotten much better at that process. Um, we're still not great at it. Um, and we continue as a society to make some poor choices. <laughs> um, but I'm not saying which ones. But, uh, but we, do have, we do have a better understanding of how to do it. And so I'm trying to kind of look at that. But the other thing about this book is that it's got literature in it. Um, because part of the argument is... is literature. Literature. Creature. I was this an old grad school. So use it. Because part of the argument is that in, in personal decisions of that magnitude, um, one of the great tools that we can use... Um, this is, this is one of the kind of functions of the novel. Uh, the novels, great novels, allow us to kind of rehearse for the big decisions in our lives and by in understanding all the variables that are going and the potential consequences of the big decision by running all these kind of parallel simulations of lives that are vaguely kind of similar to ours or of similar complexity. Because uh, we don't get to run parallel simula simulations of our own lives to see what decisions will work or not. Um, and so literature, in a kind of intimate, kind of personal level, lets us do that. So there's a little bit of kind of literature in it for the first time, really, in any of my books. 
Well, a book about long-term thinking will probably lead to another salt talk from you. Thank you very much uh, for doing this. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> this seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.